Today's reading is from Acts chapter 22, verse 30, through to um, chapter 23, verse 35. And it's on page 1732 of the Church Bible, and it's also on the screen. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realise that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring, them, bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent, sent for me and asked me to bring you this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give it to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in an ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, 
Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent you to him at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Hello, friends. What a day. What a day. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Father, gee, there are mixed emotions amongst us this morning. Some of us will feel that very deeply. Uh, There's a certain amount of confliction that that might engender in us. And we just pray that as we now come and look at your word, you would help us to be confident in what you do for your people and how you do it and how through all sorts of trials you will carry your people through and make sure that your purposes are met. Now, Father, as we look at this long passage and this long trial from Acts, uh, help us to be able to see what you are doing for us today here in the hills and how that might be applied into the way that we live our lives this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In my past, I've had the privilege of doing a certain amount of youth work, which has been great. Uh, And I want to tell you about a day when I took a youth group abseiling. Abseiling is one of those times when you stand on the top of a very big cliff, you throw a very small rope over it, and you put lunch at the bottom so you know that all of the kids, if they want to eat, which all teenagers do, then they have to go over the cliff. And on this particular day... One of the kids in the group who uh, we'd had some trouble with and who'd been a bit of a bully to some of the smaller kids uh, that were in in our group, Uh, this guy, very macho as he was, got out on the edge of the cliff, connected to the rope, leaned back. If anyone's ever abseiled before, you know abseiling. It's at the bit where you just have to go 90 degree to the cliff face that's the hardest bit of abseiling and he got to that point and he made the mistake of looking down 
<laughs> and froze. Absolutely froze. And no matter what we do, he couldn't speak, he couldn't move, he just froze. Anyway, after quite a while, one of the smaller kids in the youth group, one of the kids that he'd often pushed around a bit, got out on the rope next to him, leaned out shoulder to shoulder with the guy and said to him, do you believe that I can help you? With nowhere to go, he eventually said yes. And his younger, smaller mate said, take my hand. And bit by bit, they edged their way out of trouble and went to lunch. This morning, if there's one thing you take out of Acts 23, then let it be this. Belief shapes what you do. Take courage in Jesus. Okay? Belief shapes what you do. Take courage in Jesus. If I was to walk up afterwards and said to you, how are you today? Then say back to me, belief shapes what you do. Take courage in Jesus. It's going to be very relevant for us this week. It's going to be very relevant for what happens in our church family, in this church family in the coming months. Allow me to remind you where we're up to in Acts. We've been looking at the final section of the Acts of the Apostles from chapter 21. We're going to go through to the end. We're not going to go as slowly as I've gone. We're going to sort of speed up over the next few weeks, three weeks or so. The Apostle Paul, he's under arrest. A mob of Jews had removed him from the temple. They were trying to kill him. Their claim was that Paul was speaking against their, their, their culture, against their nationality, against their laws and against the temple. And to his rescue comes the Roman authorities, eager to keep the peace, not understanding the religious issue in mind, and they remove Paul from the angry mob. Then, for some reason, agree to allow him to address them again. That just incites them further, and so they have to come to the rescue of him again and, and put him into the barracks for his own protection. And so at the end of 22, chapter 22, where we start today, we find Paul in jail and the Sanhedrin being called to hear his case. Now, what's a Sanhedrin? Sounds like something you might uh, find in an exotic hotel or something like that. What is a Sanhedrin? A Sanhedrin is the New Testament's way of saying the sitting together ones. Okay, it was uh, as the Jews established their sort of um, churches or synagogues in, in the cities, uh, then what they would do is they would put together a ruling council or assembly of up to about 70 people to discuss matters of faith and practice. Now, this wasn't a law court, so it didn't have jurisdiction over, over matters of the day, civil or criminal in, in, in any way. <clears throat> uh, but uh, it meant that if they wanted the secular authorities of the day to do something, they would have to take their case to them, which, of course, is the reason why Jesus gets put before uh, the... The, the, the ruling authorities, because the Sanhedrin could not proclaim his death. And that's exactly the reason why Paul is brought before this Sanhedrin. They have no, the Sanhedrin has no power, uh, secular power, over what Paul's faith will be. Now, this is a bad comparison, uh, but most denominations today have a ruling body. 
uh, elderships or synods or general councils, depending on what it is. Uh, and they gather as representatives around a region. Uh, as members of the Anglican Church of Adelaide, this diocese, uh, you may not realise that, but, uh, but we are sort of members of that diocese. That's, uh, we, they have a synod annually. That synod gathers together representatives of churches around Adelaide who are Anglican. That is like the Sanhedrin. Uh, and uh, sometimes there is disagreement over faith and practice issues. Um, uh, but that synod has no say over the laws of the land. Same as the Sanhedrin back then. Okay, this Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees and of Pharisees. Uh, to understand the difference, Sadducees were primarily concerned about matters relating to the temple. So if it had something to do with the way you did what you did in the temple, Sadducees would have an opinion. The Pharisees, they were primarily concerned with the way that you lived your life out in faith and, and, uh, and the practice of your Judaism, so to speak. Um, and uh, so uh, if you were doing something that became, came to their attention, then they would be consulting with you uh, to help you get back on their straight and narrow. That's the way that Pharisees would sort of operate. Now, those two groups, Sadducees, Pharisees, didn't always agree. Same could be said today. So Paul is brought before this Sanhedrin. And in chapter 23, he begins his second defense speech. So the first one last week, second defense speech. It's very short-lived. Verse 1. Very helpful to have this open. Verse 1. Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin and says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all conscience to this day. And with that, someone punches him in the face. Now, you've got to hope that Paul had not spent too much time preparing this speech because if, if he's going to get hit in the face for every line he says, this is going to be a very long day. It turns out that the high priest has ordered that Paul be hit. Uh, perhaps he'd already determined that Paul, uh, 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 that, uh, Paul was guilty um, and to claim that he was doing it by good conscience as a duty towards God, well, that could sound like blasphemy. Paul reacts quite strongly and, say, and says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit here to judge me according to your law, and yet you violate that law by commanding that I be struck. Now, remember that Paul, in the last 12 hours or so, he's been arrested, he's been beaten, he's been accused of being a terrorist, he's been accused of being, uh, of, of being against Judaism, against the law, against the temple. He was verbally abused, he was strung up to be flogged, he was thrown into jail, he was set before those who were calling for his death. You could probably give him just a little bit of slack for reacting so strongly. But be that as it may, I think the reason why Luke puts this in here for us is so that we can see the hypocrisy that is at play. Paul is simply drawing out the inconsistency between them holding him to a particular level of accountability and having no accountability themselves. Now, I want to come back to that inconsistency a little later as we look at a lesson that we might be able to take from this episode. So let's try and get this defense speech back on the track. We've only got one line out. So, verse 6. 
Paul knowing that some of the council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees, he starts his speech again. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And with that, a squabble breaks out. Two lines of defence. That's all Paul gets here. Two lines of defence before this entire Sanhedrin. The first one, he gets slapped in the face. The second one, a squabble breaks out. That's the end of the case. And the squabble comes down to religious differences. The Sadducees, you see, they don't believe in the resurrection in any form at all. And the Pharisees, they were happy to acknowledge that Scripture speaks of a resurrection. It also speaks of angels and spirits in the way that they think about it. So you can see there's a religious issue here for them. And what Paul has done is he's just presented to them this problem. He is proclaiming that he believes that there is a resurrection. Not just a, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of, of, of all, like, like a general resurrection. And he knows that because he's heard it from a dead man who is now alive. The Pharisees would say that was from the angels or the spirits. But Paul and we know that that's from Jesus himself. The Pharisees would be rejecting their own doctrine to disagree with Paul. Whereas the Sadducees, they cannot accept what he has just claimed because they would have to reject what they stood for. And so you have a house divided. The Pharisees find themselves remarkably, look at verse 9, defending what Paul is saying. We find nothing wrong with this man. Now just think about that. We find nothing wrong with this man. Why are we here in the Sanhedrin? We are here because the Pharisees have dragged me in here to say, this guy is a problem. Let's take him to the secular authorities and get him killed. And here we are standing on there before, before them. And they are now declaring, we find nothing wrong with this man. You can imagine what the Roman authorities watching this must have been thinking. This is bonkers. Can you imagine you, join, imagine you join a board for the company you work for? You enter the boardroom and you find that everyone on the board is convinced that the company has to move forward. But there is a clear division in the way that you're going to be able to move forward. And so what's the plan? The company divides and goes in two different directions, neither of which is sustainable, and so both fold. What they believe shapes what they do. Can you see in the Sanhedrin, what they believe shapes what they do, and that's the reason why they have a problem. And for Paul's own safety, given the dispute got so violent, the Romans rescue him a third time and return him to the barracks. Okay, still with me? Put your hand up if you're awake. Put your hand up if you're asleep. Okay. 
Lesson number one. Lesson number one. Hope in the resurrection matters. Here's the first lesson for today. Hope in the resurrection matters. There are three defense speeches to come in each Paul speaks of the resurrection. Must be important to him. For the audience he has before him now, who are largely Jews, this hope is actually their hope. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant scriptures have pointed forward to a resurrection hope, a place where all of the covenant people of God would rest after they died. This is their hope. Of, uh, of all in the New Testament, of all of the writers in the New Testament, Paul is very clear on the importance of the resurrection. What I want you to do is keep your finger in Acts 23, or a body part, Acts 23, and flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? That means you're going to have to move towards the back of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. If you've got a page number from a pew Bible for a, um, for a Hills Bible. 1789. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 12. We see here what motivates Paul. He knows Jesus as the resurrected Lord. He has seen Jesus, once dead, now living. And it is this reality which lies behind what he teaches here. Okay. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised, so we're false witnesses. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, well, they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul questions, if Christ did rise from the dead, then how can anyone say, how can the Sadducees say, how can anyone say there is no resurrection at all? You see, he'd be speaking rubbish. If your aim was to encourage people to have a resurrection hope, something, you know, life after death, if your aim was to have a resurrection hope because of Jesus, but he didn't rise, you would simply be leading people astray. Preaching is useless. Faith is useless. In fact, your words are false. And what you've said, regardless of what God has said, well, it's futile. All those who have died holding on to a resurrection hope are lost. And believers in the resurrection today, well, we should be pitied as fools. It's pretty serious, isn't it? When you put it like that, it's actually quite fundamental. We probably need to get our head around this one because if we can't get our head around this one, it really does question what it is that we stand for. 
For Paul, the resurrection lies as the obvious result of what the Jews should have believed from their own scriptures. But more than that, the resurrection was also the obvious result of what the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Romans had all witnessed in their lifetime because it had happened to Jesus right here in Jerusalem. So put the scriptures aside, if you'd like to, what they all would have seen is Jesus crucified. And what they all would have heard about was the fact that he got back to life again. Look at the beginning of chapter 15. And Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel, the great news that's, uh, that's, uh, that saved you. And in verse 3, he says this, For I have received, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died according, uh, for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, also according to the scriptures, that he, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers. Um, the translation here in sisters, that's not there. It's actually the men. Appeared to 500 of the men at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, notice what Paul says here. This is what happened to Jesus. He died. Scriptures said he would. He was buried and he was buried for three days and then he rose. Scripture said he would. But if you don't trust the scriptures, then consider all of the people he appeared to after he has died, many of whom they would personally know. Peter, the disciples, the 500 men, then James, then the apostles, and then Paul. My math tells me that that's 513 men, not including the women and the children who he also appeared to. Remember who found him at the tomb, who went to the tomb first? It was the women. There are more than 513 people who are the direct witnesses of the fact that he rose from the dead, not to mention the rest of the city of all of the different nationalities that would have been there. That is a lot of people who could confirm that a dead man was now alive. But place that all to a side for the moment. Scriptures, okay, let's just place that aside. All of the witnesses you've got there, let's just place that to a side. Think about this a little bit further. Paul has just called himself out. He's laid his cards on the table. He has preached that as of first importance that Christ is living. He has preached that that for the benefit of all of those who will believe. We've just read that. Now, in the face of opposition, which is calling for his life... He's sticking to his story. What could he possibly gain for losing his life for a lie? We know that he has his back up against it. There is nowhere to run here. Why not just change the story? In February this year, Billy Graham died. 
and went to glory age 99. You sort of think, oh, I couldn't have made 100. So you've got eternity. 100 really is just a bit of a slash in the pan, isn't it? Billy was one of the most influential evangelists of the last 20th century. Uh, and one of Billy's quotes that was repeated on social media quite a lot in the weeks after he died was this one. It's on your outline. Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive then I am now. I will have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. It wasn't actually an original quote. Billy, in fact, adapted that from Dwight L. Moody, who was one of the most influential evangelists of the century before, the 19th century. Both men stood unswervingly for what they believed. Both men preached a resurrection hope. And both men believed. And what they believed shaped their lives right to their death. Friends, what place does the resurrection take in what you believe? I hope that's not too much of a personal question, but what place does it take in what you believe? You don't have to believe in Jesus for this question still to be relevant. What place does the resurrection take in what you believe? I don't believe it. Maybe you say, I don't believe it. That, maybe that's, that's your position. Well, it will shape nothing about your life. It'll shape, the, there will be nothing in there that will, will, will change about what you, you do. Or I'm unsure about it. Well, then what are you doing? Now, my wife and I have just bought a car recently. We weren't sure which car to get. We were unsure about it. So we did the research and we went right through until eventually we could work out what car was the best car that we thought we could do and so that we were no longer unsure but sure. Still not sure about paying for it. If you're unsure about something, then check it out. Or maybe you believe it. So then how does it shape the decisions that you make in life? And that really, friends, is probably the Christian question, isn't it? You believe the resurrection, then how does it shape the way you live your life? It's obviously shaped the way Paul lives his. How does it shape the way you live your life? Go back to Acts 23 and get, relieve that body part and so that you can go back into Acts 23. Verse 12. Next morning, the Jews formed a working group, a bunch of about 40 men who made a vow that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. They bring their death plot to the chief priest, the elders of the Sanhedrin, who conspire with them to ambush Paul. Notice that the Sanhedrin now have to get on the same page together. This is the Pharisees who just said, we can find nothing wrong with this man. Can you see the inconsistency of the religious leaders here? 
this is what they did to Jesus. Remember the guy called Judas? Turned up to the religious leaders and said, I've got this plan. They worked out a plan, conspired, changed money. Judas went off and betrayed Jesus. And here they are in the thick of it again concerning Paul. Somehow Paul's nephew hears about this plan and he alerts Paul who sends him to the centurion who takes him to the Roman commander. And what we read next is the fourth rescue by the Romans as they send an escort of, get this, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to take Paul to Caesarea under the cover of dark. Why would you listen to a 14-year-old's report and listen to it so well that you send 270 and 200 armed men or women or whoever it is that's going to be taking that role to protect this one man? Maybe it just shows you the respect that Paul now commands. And spare a thought for the men who hatched the death plot, who are now going to be very hungry. So with the escort, the commander sends a letter to Governor Felix. And the letter, well, it starts at verse 26 or so. The letter, it's a total suck-up. Am I allowed to say that? It it gives a brief account of what happened, leaving out all of the parts where Paul was treated badly and presents the facts in a way that sounds, oh, so lovely. I mean, oh, we had this guy here. We thought he was, you know, we thought we'd refer him to you while we looked after him really, really well. We're going to refer him to you so that you can make a decision on whether there's a problem here or not. It says nothing about the way that they've mistreated him at all. And what is key is verse 29. Claudius, the Roman uh, commander, states that Paul is not deserving of death or imprisonment at least under Roman law. So just like his Lord Jesus, Paul is declared innocent in the face of the authorities. The first of numerous declarations, as you'll see as we move through the following trials. Chapter 23 finishes with Paul as a guest under guard in Herod's palace. Isn't it a ripping yarn? Okay, lesson number two, what we believe shapes what we do. What we believe shapes what what we do. Now, to make this point, allow me to step us a bit back from Paul. Uh, In this account, we see the influence of belief on all of the players in the story. In fact, I think it helps us understand the place of belief in our world today. And often Christians talk about who, those who believe, you know, us, and those who don't, them. Uh, It's a contrast that shows itself when we draw an unhelpful line in the sand that says you're in or you're out. May I suggest a little modification to the way that we think about belief? Everyone does what they do because of belief. You get in your car when you leave this place today, you get in the car under the belief that it will do what it will do, that it will turn on and drive somewhere. You go to the shop tomorrow to buy something, you're going to that shop because you believe that they will have what it is that you want. Everybody does what they do because they believe. We all believe in something. What changes is the belief that we hold to because that's what motivates what we do. So try this for size. 
Three different beliefs. If I had more time, I'd develop this a little bit longer with you. Three different beliefs. The first, there are many today who hold to a religious belief. This is the type of belief that uh, you, you have, um, like what the Pharisees do, the Sadducees and those in the Sanhedrin do, that regulates your view of God, whoever he or she may be, uh, and shows itself in the way that you do what you do to keep God happy. You know, if I was to stand behind before that God, then I can list off all of these things that I've done and God will be happy with me. That's a religious belief. And what's hard about that is in the end, it's really you saying, this is what I'm happy to believe and I'm just counting on God, whoever that might be, to be happy with what I've decided. In the end, it's an inconsistent belief. Friends, it's very possible that Christians today can still hold on to this error that your efforts will earn you a place with God's favour. In a group this size, it's very possible that you consider yourself a Christian and yet you base that upon what you do to earn God's favour. Respectfully, that is a religious belief. It's not a gospel belief. So there's first number type of belief. Second, there are also those who hold to an irreligious belief. Now, you're going to know what these ones are because this is becoming very prevalent around us in your school places, at uni, at work. You know the people who actually just don't even care whether God exists or not. It doesn't matter one iota to them. It's not as if they want to say, oh, I don't believe. They just, they just don't need to believe. There is no, there's no, it's going to change nothing about the way that I live my life. I don't have to even consider whether there is or not. I'm completely agnostic to that one. And we see that around us. It shouldn't be surprising because the society we live in has done all sorts it can to do to remove any teaching about God or faith or Jesus or even about religion from any of our secular sphere. So collectively, we as a people, even as a secular people, well, we don't need to think of anything higher than ourselves anymore. And instead, we talk about Mother Nature or yin and yang or the goal of life becoming, of being do whatever makes you happy. What is good for you is good for you. <laughs> What's good for me is good for me. We're all happy. It's cool, isn't it? <laughs> Unless, of course, I disagree with you. Or I don't like what you do, in which case I'm right. You can see how that plays out? Can you recognize that in us in our world? Can you recognize that maybe in yourself? Anytime you place your rights or preferences before that which is offered in the gospel, you're allowing an irreligious belief to shape you. And then there are those who hold to a gospel belief. This is the kind of belief that is ground totally in Christ. It recognizes that regardless, Christ has accepted you. It's a belief that sees Jesus for who he is, the resurrected Lord, the one who came and died, not because of what religion called for, and certainly not because that's what the irreligious world asked for, but because that's what he did to call people to himself. It is what he did 
to call people to himself. So that when we die, and we all will, like him, we would also rise to life like him. And his purpose was to bring us to God. Gospel belief says, I am accepted in Christ. And so I will obey. And that is what motivates Paul. That's why he's here doing what he is doing. He is motivated by a gospel belief. You know, in Acts 23, why does Paul say he's fulfilled the duty, uh, his duty to God in all good conscience? It's because he has a resurrection hope. He trusts Jesus. He knows that Jesus will carry him through whatever is to come, whether that be more suffering, more false claims, more opposition, maybe more death plots, maybe even death itself. Let me show you one last verse in this little section. It's, it's chapter 23, verse 11. Chapter 23, verse 11. It's slam in the middle of chaos after Paul's been wrenched away from a violent council and right before the, the plot to kill him is hatched. Jesus appears. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. Take courage. Now, can you imagine with everything going on around Paul, as bad as it seemed, what it would have been like to have Jesus come and, and stand with him and say, take courage. You've done what I've asked. You've testified about me here in Jerusalem. You know what? I'm going to send you on to Rome. You can be confident that I'm going to send you on to Rome. You don't need to fear what is going on here, what is going to happen. I'm sending you to Rome. Take courage. You will make it through this. That's why Paul is quite relaxed in the way that he approaches this whole thing, because he has a resurrection hope. He knows the resurrected Jesus is with him, and he knows that there is more to come. Friends, that is gospel belief. A belief that Jesus has done for you what you couldn't do yourself. So take courage. Whatever is in store, whatever is before you, no matter how bad that might be, then if you are with Jesus... Take his hand. Take courage. Let your gospel belief shape the way you live. Even if it feels scary climbing down that cliff. Let's pray. Lord and Father, how awesome it is to know that in a resurrection hope that you are standing with us. 
And we ask that you help us to do exactly what you told Paul to do, take courage. To take courage in what you have already set about for us. And help us to be like Paul and testify about you, wherever that might be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.